Okay, we're going to go back to the book of Exodus, and the title of today's message is Sin, Fear, and Grace. We're going to look at the chapter in Exodus just before the Ten Commandments are given. So if you uh, want to take notes or follow this in your bulletin, there's no separate insert, but one of the pages in the bulletin actually does have the passage and some space to take notes, and it'll also contain the takeaways, uh, the applicational points for your personal life. Um, Sin, fear, and grace, Exodus 19, page 53, if you're using the Pew Bible. Genesis, Exodus, these are the books of Moses as they're referred to. Not everything in it was written by Moses, which is pretty obvious. Uh, but especially the part where he says Moses was the humblest man on earth, that wouldn't be written by Moses, probably, because that's a little hard to say and be the humblest person on earth at the same time. I suppose it could be done. I suppose if you were truly humble, you could recognize that you were humble without it being unhumble. Uh, It gets complicated, doesn't it? So, Exodus chapter 19, it's not too important if you weren't following along in weeks past uh, or aren't familiar with this, because this is a very famous uh, passage of scripture. When we get to the Ten Commandments next week, I'll spend more time on the Ten Commandments because that is one of the fundamental cultural, historical, cultural Uh, documents in Western history, if not in the history of the world, uh, because it's quite well known in other cultures as well. But we want to spend some time on that, but not today. We want to do what leads up to it. Now, you recall that I'm just going to give you a brief survey. The Israelites, you recall, had been slaves and slaves while they had lived in Egypt as guests originally, started at 70 and then expanded to Many more than that, and uh, 430 years later, Moses was called by God to lead them out. Now, we looked at that in the first part of the book of Exodus, uh, God's calling and then the crossing of the Red Sea. This may be a little hard to see because of the distance. Well, this is a little bigger up here, but um, uh, they came out of Egypt and went through the Red Sea, which is, you see the Gulf of Suez, which would have been somewhere north north of that at that time. I think there is a little ambiguity of exactly what is represented by the reference to the Red Sea, but certainly the story contains a, I would say, an easily factual account of how God miraculously enabled them to cross over into the Sinai Peninsula. It is is in the news a lot, and you see way at the bottom of the peninsula there, Rephidim and Mount Sinai. These are places that are going to show up in today's story. And uh, this is a wilderness area. By wilderness, it doesn't necessarily mean all sand and sand dunes like the famous uh, deserts, dune country, or even down by Florence, Oregon type of dune, but it, it simply means it's not a populous area, not easy to settle and mostly the agriculture of an area like that would have had to do with sheep and those kind of things, animals. If you've traveled across Montana, parts of Idaho, eastern Washington, eastern Oregon, you know the country. 
that's really the country it is. Uh, it's not the kind of place that's ever going to be densely populated. And they're making it down there. So if you'll pick up there in the 19th chapter of Exodus, verse 1, I will read and uh, we'll make some comments as we go, factual parts of the text, and then we'll talk about how some of these principles apply to us. 19 verse 1, Exodus 19 verse 1, In the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on the very day they came to the desert of Sinai, and after they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in the front of the mountain. And you recall that Rephidim was a place where a few weeks ago we looked at how the people there rebelled against God and Moses and uh, and uh, they complained about not having water and um, along the same lines of their complaints about not having food. God gave them manna, not having water, bitter water. And uh, this, this happened all in a three-month period of time, some of these initial, uh, you might say, birth behaviors or infant behaviors of the Israelites. And they learned some lessons from it. They were taught by it. God led them uh, several different places leading up to this, talks about God leading them and the patterns that he used to lead them and how we looked at how some of those patterns he uses to lead us as well. Verse 3, Moses went up to God. This would be on the holy mountain or Mount Sinai. And went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, this is what you are to say to the house of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt. And how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. This is a promise God made to the people of Israel that they would be the chosen people. Now that always creates a few problems when you talk about a chosen people. Isn't this sort of like uh, ethnic preference uh, that God prefers the Jews over other people? This would seem remarkable if you're of Dutch descent that anybody but the Dutch would be the chosen ones in the world or English or any other sort of ethnic identity. It would seem rather remarkable. But as you see through this entire story, when God calls the people of Israel to be his chosen people, other places actually, with prophets particularly, they're told, it is not because you're the best. It wasn't because you're the richest, the best looking, the tallest, the most powerful people on earth. In fact, quite the opposite. God chose you because you were a pack of losers. That's really what God said to them. Because they were like a minute bunch of people who couldn't do anything. They had to actually go to Egypt to stay alive during tough times. And God chose them to prove his presence his power and might. He took the small, the inconsequential, the unrecognized in the world and turned it into something that could represent him. So the calling that the Israelites had from the beginning, they were told, I'm going to make you a nation of a kingdom of priests and prophets and representatives of me. Well, that's a quote that actually Peter uses in the book of Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, that 
referring to the church, the Christians, but in a totally different way, not the national way or the ethnic way uh, or the law-giving way, but in the gospel way, the body of Christ. is, is uh, That's our mission as well, is to be a kingdom of uh, a nation of priests and a uh, kingdom of priests and a holy nation to represent God in the world. So what the Israelites were called to do from the very beginning, and this is why there's a condition, an if-then clause. And I have mentioned this before, but I think it's worth repeating here. Some of you may have one of those specialized editions of the Bible. There are many. There's a women's edition. I have no idea what that means. I think it's pink. Uh, there's men's edition. I have no idea what that means. Uh, but there's a promise edition of the Bible. And all the promises in the Bible are highlighted in that. And I don't, I'm not going to ask anybody for Some of you may have that or at least seen it. And, and it's not a different translation. It's just they're, they're highlighted, all the promises. There's about 1,500 of them. But for every promise in the Bible, there is a condition. It's an if-then statement, every single one. And I've never really seen a condition to the promises edition of the Bible. But I think one of the geniuses of this book is its balance and its truth-speaking in ways that makes people uncomfortable. And it's supposed to make us uncomfortable. It wouldn't be the word from God from outside if it just made us comfortable. What point would that be? You can just stay home and... Sip something and watch TV if that's your mission in life. Get comfortable or smoke something or anything you want to do. That's okay. But if it's God speaking, there's an element of discomfort. It ought to bother you. And when God says, you do what I say, and I'm going to bless you and make you visible and make you successful in the world so that people will look at you and say, oh, that's how it's done. Oh, that's the God you're talking about. Verse 7. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words of the Lord that the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. This is kind of like an altar call. Well, you know from the story that the people of Israel not only did not do everything that God said, uh, we saw that even in the previous chapters, but I think a good number of them had no intention of doing everything that God said. They wanted to get in on the act and the benefits. That's something we struggle with ourselves. We're not always sincere. This is why Solomon in Ecclesiastes chapter 5 says, Be careful about making vows to God. You don't need to make vows. God knows who you are. Just listen, do, walk with them. But be careful about all these promises you think you ought to make to God. Just make sure that when you make the promises, the covenant statement, you mean it. Think about it. I am quite opposed to emotion-driven altar calls or appeals in church or television or any place else. I'm opposed to them because I think God is opposed to them. I think they're setups for people to mess with God be phony with God because, well, the condition called for it. i got to say yes. If I don't say yes, <laughs> what's going to happen to me? That's not the way God ever does it. It's not the way Jesus did it. Jesus more often told people, go away. Don't follow me if it's not real. 
He doesn't want that. He doesn't want any fake religion. But the people's immediate response, and you, can, and you know where that's leading, was, yeah, we're going to do it. You betcha. Number nine, verse nine, the Lord said to Moses, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. And the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day. Because on that day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of the people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not go up the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. He shall surely be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on him. Whether man or animal, he shall not be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast may you go up to the mountain. After Moses had gone down the mountain to the people, he consecrated them and they washed their clothes. And then he said to the people, prepare prepare yourself for the third day, abstain from sexual relations. Now let me say a word or two about that. There's nothing, no implication in this or any place else in the Bible that sexual relations are wrong. It's the context. God created male and female, according to Genesis chapter 2, very specifically. And throughout the Old Testament, there's well over a hundred references to that topic. But the emphasis is always on doing that subject or keeping that subject and that behavior within God's intent. And you will be blessed. But if you jump over the fence and say, I don't care what God has to say about this subject. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. It's going to hurt you. It hurts society. It hurts families. It hurts you. That's the point of this. But here, he's talking about a special dedication. He's not kind of like uh, fasting and prayer and preparation. He's not really talking here about the good or the bad of sexual relations, as the term is used here. And he's not even talking about wear clean clothes. Uh, If you're working out in the field, your clothes probably aren't going to be that clean. That's not sin. That's not the implication. Talking about a special occasion where God is going to visit the people of Israel in a way that they have never seen before and will not see again. So be prepared for that. Now the part about the capital punishment on this subject, I want to remind you of the fact that in our sort of, I'd have to say soft, uh, middle class, suburban lifestyles, The whole notion of bloodshed and violence, we're kind of protected from it. Most people in the world and most people in history wouldn't see anything unusual about these things. It's we, the way we live, that we think, well, that's either just on television or just bad people do that or whatever it is. I don't think so. I think in the real world, this kind of thing would just seem kind of normal but the point God is making to them which he makes throughout the revelation of his law is that there are things that are more important than life and limb and individual liberties there are things that destroy whole masses of people so get ahead of it not this method pointed out earlier the mission of the church is not the mission of the theocratic kingdom of Israel So these references need to be kept in a context that God is setting them up for a 
national and civil law construction of being his people, not the church construction. If anything was said like this in a church that, well, we're going to take you out and do this, unless it was a joke or something, take you out and do this because you did this, that's not the mission of the church. And I think it's important for us to keep reminding ourselves that the mission of the civil authorities, the justice system in society, is a different mission than we have. This is in the discussion a lot these days about secure border. Well, the mission of the government is a different mission of the church, uh, where it's not our mission to, to either open or close the borders. That's the responsibility of those who are in positions to protect us, and that's what they're supposed to do, is protect us. Our mission is to approach the people that we see and find, love our neighbor as ourselves, and present them with love and the word of God. That's fundamentally the mission of the church, not to replace the civil government, or vice versa. We don't want that happening the other way around either. And then in verse 16, on the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently, and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Then Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended to the top of, the, of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up, and the Lord said to him, Go down and warn the people so they do not force their way through to see the Lord, and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves, or the Lord will break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up Mount Sinai. Because you yourself warned us, put limits around the mountain and set it apart as holy. And the Lord replied, go down and bring Aaron up with you. But the priests and the people must not force their way through to come up to the Lord or he will break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Uh, this, this, it's just hard to explain this in light of the gospel. We who live in the Christian background culture familiar with the Christian story, don't get this. But the point of God speaking to the Israelites this way was clear. It's an act of grace on his part. Distance was part of grace. The temple set up. It was very carefully regulated who could approach God in a direct way. The whole story of Jesus was that God sent his son, Jesus, to bridge that gap to take away that barrier so you could speak to him directly this way through Jesus. But the God of the universe, if he is how he's presented in this book, if he is what the term God would imply, would be a dangerous power. If you attempted to enter the presence of God without the intermediary, Moses, is what he's saying, and later the temple, or in our case, Jesus, who can come and go at will in the Father's presence, if you attempt to do that, it would actually be deadly to you. This is not a game. 
This is the God of the universe. This is a God who lives on a plane that you cannot live on. You will die if you attempt to. And we might say, well, I wish God would show himself in this way nowadays more often. Maybe he could come on to Mount Hood and smoke all that snow out of there. And boy, we could all come and go see him. Yeah, maybe you ought to be thankful that he doesn't do that. Number one, if you were around when Mount St. Helens blew, you already got a picture of what it's going to look like. It's not going to be healthy for most people anyway. And if it happened on Mount Hood, there would be about, well, that would be the end of Portlandia, the TV show, that's for sure. And it would be the end of almost everybody that lives within 50-mile radius if this happened there. Uh, because that's not the way God chooses to approach us. He has given a way that is open to us all on a different path. That's what Jesus came and did. Gave us the opportunity to be in God's presence in a form that we could survive. And it had to do with mediating and bridging the gap of sin and the darkness and the disease and all of the things that we bring with us into the presence of God, which would normally cause a zap of some kind that we wouldn't survive. That's the story. Then, in chapter 20, the Ten Commandments begin. So let me talk to you a little bit about how this would apply, and I've got, made some suggestions here, takeaways for life. Uh, number one, Fear is a God-given emotion. Don't deny it or pretend. Address it head on and then look up. I had a conversation a few years ago when I was living in Spokane. We were in a Bible study discussion. And um, one of the guys there started talking about how God said, fear not. So you should never have any fear. I, I said, I, my, my reaction to that is, you don't have any kids, do you? No, he didn't. That's how I knew he didn't understand the principle. Because if you got kids, there are many things you want your kids to fear. Keep them alive long enough to make good decisions. And never be ashamed as parents to threaten the hell out of them. And I'm using that term advisedly. That's what we're there for. And that's what God was doing to the people of Israel. Keeping them alive long enough so that till they're mature enough to make decisions that are good ones. If you don't scare your kids, you're a lousy parent. Please give up your kids. They ought to be afraid of you to keep you alive, to keep them alive. Well, I don't mean that that's the only response they're ever going to have to you. And God doesn't want that either. But we've got this kind of silly little notion. Now, when the Bible says fear God, that's just a word for have funsies with Papa Jesus or some goofball notion like that that isn't in this book. God the Father deliberately made an approach that enabled us to come before him not in the power of our own goodness and own personality but in the power of Jesus his son and without that approach please fear God and even if you do know Jesus fear God this is what Paul talks about in the book of Galatians 
The law is a good thing. Book of Hebrews, chapter 10, fear God. Chapter 6, Hebrews, fear God. Why? If you're not smart enough to walk with God and live according to his ways that you know, you should be afraid. Grace and love do not cancel the power of God. God is to be feared if you choose to paint yourself with the garbage and the filth of the world which belongs to the enemy, Satan. Fear God. But even in daily life, there are some things you should be afraid of. Kids have a natural fear of water, snakes, height. We got, we got a whole list of phobias that people are afraid of. Those things keep people alive. Now, you can learn how to live with those things, and you should. But it is unnatural for humans to not fear heights. It's unnatural for humans to not fear water. It's unnatural for humans to not... If you were a fish, now that would be a different story. And I don't mean just smell fishy. I mean, if you were a fish, you wouldn't fear water, right? But you don't live in the water. People drown in the water. If you've ever had anybody close to you drown, you know that this is a very serious business. People fall off of things. People fall out of airplanes. People fall off of cliffs. That instinct is good. But here's the point. Don't deny or pretend. Address it head on and then look up. Say, I'm afraid of this. Everybody is told what courage is at some point in their lives. Courage is not the absence of fear. But courage is being afraid but doing the right thing anyway. That's courage. Because if you have an absence of fear, that just means there's something missing between your ears. Fear keeps you alive. And that's what the Israelites were being told with God. Be afraid. But if you want to enjoy life and a relationship with God and bridge that fear gap, he's going to give us a method. And he did that for us with Jesus. Number two, there's no good news without the bad news. No grace without law. This is a preparation for the Ten Commandments, but he's setting it up quite powerfully, I think, that you can emphasize grace, and we should. But the fact is, without law, there is no grace. It's not even a relevant topic. Some people think that Jesus died on a cross to apologize for God. Well, God is... I'm here to tell you that God made a big old boo-boo when he said this is wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong, and that's going to kill you, and this is all bad stuff, and this is morally corrupt. So I'm dying on the cross as a statement from God for how sorry he is that he said all those negatory things. The story is very specific on this. This is so real that somebody had to actually pick up the cost. Because it's real. It's God, his standards, the creator, the judge. He gets to determine life because he made it. And he can zap it and take away at will. But he doesn't. But he is not apologizing for what he said was wrong because what he said was wrong was wrong and is wrong. If we understand grace as saying anything goes, grace is really the solution to the problem of the sin problem. The separation between us and God. The guilt and the fear. Number three. 
Sin's not a four-letter word, and neither is guilt. Both are essential stepping stones to forgiveness and freedom. That statement's more clever than it looks at first, than when I wrote it, too, even. Sin's not a four-letter word, it's a three-letter word, and guilt is not a four-letter word, it's a five-letter word. But the point that I'm making is pretty clear. You've probably heard it before. Actually, sin and guilt are extremely important for dealing with life's problems. One of the problems of the approach that says it's all about self-esteem or you should not allow anybody to make you feel bad, one of the problems with that is that that's feeding poison to a poisoned person. You did sin. You are guilty. Do something about it. But if you're taught to just chant, I'm not guilty, I'm not a sinner, I'm just as good as everybody, I'm just as good as God, I'm just as, I'm, this is all negatory and I'm not taking it, you will live a slave forever to guilt, sin, and despair. Because the secret to healing is recognizing you're sick. You can't solve the problem without admitting there is one. Sin is a wonderful concept. It explains what's wrong with us. And it can be fixed. There's a solution to it. But if we say there's nothing wrong with me, it just looks like I'm dying of cancer or whatever it is. There's nothing wrong with me. Nothing anybody can do. When I was um, first started out in ministry, I tried to mentor a guy that was living at the downtown uh, mission in Bellingham, Washington, and took him out to lunch and coffee a few times. One day I picked him up, and um, he was sneezing and coughing um, all over everything. I had to cover my coffee cup uh, while we were sitting at the table there. Finally, he said, it may look like I got a cold and I'm sick, but I'm not. I'm denying it. I'm claiming by faith healing. I'm denying it. I said, you know what? The Bible is very specific that lying is sin. But I don't know any place where the Bible says being sick is sin. You are a liar. You're as sick as a dog, and I'm taking you home. And until you start telling the truth, I don't want to spend any more time with you because I don't know what you're going to do to me next. You're a liar. Now that can be fixed. You can repent. You can sin. Sickness. Well, that's just living in this world. Lying about that or anything else is something you can change because it's wrong. Admit it. Admit you're a sinner. Admit your guilt. And be healed. Be cleansed. Be freed. That's the starting point. Number four. Jesus is a mediator, mediator or go-between for all time and all people. Have you met him? So this is an important question. Moses was the mediator to them. And the Bible talks about Jesus being like Moses that way. The mediator. Somebody's got to go bridge that gap. Moses went up, heard from God, came back down, talked to the people. Jesus came from God and spoke to us God's love and forgiveness and offered us the medicine for a problem, separation. Have you met him? Now, I, I'm, I'm aware that people can be in church a lot in their lives and never really know Jesus. 
And maybe some of you are kind of new to the church thing. It starts with this. Jesus is the bridge, the remedy to the sin problem. Have you made him personal to yourself? It's just as simple as telling God, yes, I'm sick. And yes, I need a remedy. Sin and guilt, I'm done with. You come in, take it away, and let me start over. That's all you got to do if, that's, if I'm talking to you. Number five, don't forget the world around you. Fear, alienation, and despair rule the darkness. So pray, act, and speak out. Uh, there are lots of good things we need to be doing in this world. But one of them we should be doing is letting other people know about the answer to the fear problem. And don't think that nobody around you is afraid. Oh, people live lives of quiet desperation or loud desperation all the time around us. You don't have to do much except turn on your television to look at the desperation or just cross the street and have coffee with your neighbor to feel the desperation sometimes. I don't mean all the time, but sometimes that the vibe of desperation that you get that from people around us that they feel like not only are they drowning in sin and guilt even if they don't use that term but they fear for the future our political future the physical future are we going to implode are we going to drown in the ocean because of global warming are we going to be nuked to death all in the next 24 hours a lot of people out there that are afraid I know I hope you if you are afraid of those things, that you turn that over to God and let him be personal and real to you. But I also hope that you have contact with people around you, that you have built enough trust with to talk about this stuff with. Pass it on. It's a good answer. Not everybody is excited to hear it, but it's still a good answer. It's one that's permanent. Jesus did the job. And we got something to share. God, you are the creator, the ruler, and the final judge of this world, this entire universe. If it's not you, it'd have to be somebody else. So it's you. We admit it. But through Jesus, we know two things. Jesus taught us how to call you Father. Loving, heavenly Father. And that's because Jesus also bridged the gap. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father. Thank you, God, for that beautiful plan, that beautiful solution, that source of power that puts us in touch with you. We give ourselves up to you. For some here, it might be first time ever to just say, Jesus, come into my life, change me. But for some of us, Lord, maybe we grow a little weak in that walk, that understanding. We let the dirt and the grime build up, and the guilt, the sin start to take back over. We give it up. We want to walk with you again. We want to be in the light. Do that for us with your spirit. 